0: Hi, my name is Bobby Murray. I live in the Detroit metro area. It's a pleasure to be a guest here on Talking Blues, and uh, hopefully we'll have some stuff that, that is of interest to you.
1: Bobby, you have an interesting combination of being an Irish-American and Japanese. Were you brought up more one or over the other, or...? where you just brought up as an American
0: well it was kind of equal opportunity Mako um even the house was decorated in western and eastern theme the food would be mixed you know my my dad being Irish American was kind of a meat and potatoes guy but my mom would mix in um some of the eastern dishes too and so it was kind of a combination and and you know we we spoke some Thai combination of English and and Japanese at times and uh so that was that was kind of uh, you know in- interesting, and we would we would go back and forth about every three years between Japan or Okinawa and the U- U.S. My dad was career military, so uh, in the Air Force, so we traveled a lot and go back and forth um, from Japan to uh, the U.S.
1: So when you were living in the U.S., were you eating? Like, did you were you brought up with any Japanese culture at that time?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I could uh, you know my. My language skills speaking Japanese are probably that of a a child, but my accent is great <laughs> um uh you know so it was i could I could get around in Japan pretty well and stuff you know um uh, but yeah we we had um it was it was kind of a dual culture i liked i like cowboy movies and I also like samurai samurai <laughs> movies too and stuff and there was just something about the music of of both cultures when I first heard of Sami Sen. Um, or or a koto, it just, it touched me. First time I heard a guitar, it it really blew me away. I I recall getting inspired on a guitar from watching a a Western called Rio Bravo where Ricky Nelson was playing his guitar, and uh, that, you know, I had to have a guitar after that, and I bugged my mom, and she did get me one. I didn't didn't play it for many years, but eventually uh, I did, and learned how to play What I'd Say by Ray Charles on it.
1: Wow, so was it driven by the fact that you heard... Ray Charles, that you thought, I need to pick up the guitar seriously? Or how how did that happen?
0: Well, you know, that was kind of a, a popular song at the time. And uh, I wanted to learn it, but I didn't learn it. My sister learned how to play it before I did, which was, you know, maybe a little embarrassing because she was two years younger and she kind of like <laughs> grasped it right away. So I bugged her and I said, you got to show me that, Claire. And she she did. And so that uh, there was a couple guys in the area. And at that time, I just played anything. Uh, but that particular song was the first song that I learned. And so my mother decided it would be a good idea for me to, to take classical guitar lessons. And I recall playing what I'd say in my classical guitar class, and the teacher what got infuriated, and I was thrown out of the class for playing that. You know, I don't <laughs> think teachers are like that anymore. Now it would be like, oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you learned that on your own. But today we're on page 26 and talk to me about that after the class. Well, this person just was furious and demanded that I I leave, gave the money back and said, don't come back again. And I was 12 years old then. And uh, something inside of me on my walk back home, first I was a little hurt and embarrassed. But then there was a part of me that also beamed a bit with pride. And something inside of me said, you know, that is what you just played. Ray Charles is every bit as worthy as anything in the classical music genre either whether that's Bach, Beethoven or Brahms or what have you and that always stayed with me later on it would kind of come out more but it wasn't my passion at the time
1: yet it's interesting to me how many people have talked to me about great teachers who musical teachers who inspired them to reach further and just as many times i've heard about horrible teachers that put them off of music for a little while that that made them stop, or that affected their learning. So it's it's interesting that you know, and you used it as a motivation, a motivational factor, as opposed to letting that stop you. But I can imagine somebody else might have said, "Okay, that's it. I'm not going to play anymore."
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I just uh, I just thought that he was wrong, and uh, <laughs> in my heart, I knew that he was, you know, that I was actually right. So, and that all music was worthy of the same respect. And, not that I had studied that you know, culturally or anything like that. It was just something I just knew inside of me.
1: Wow. So very early on, you met up with another guitar player who is, who's done quite well for himself, and, and you played with him in a, in a high school band. Can you tell me about your relationship with Robert Cray?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, uh, he, he was so talented and gifted, even when we were essentially kids. Uh, I'd moved to another high school, and uh, Robert went to school there. And we, we were playing in a high school band together. And he was just so gifted, and uh, obviously I learned a lot from him too. So, and and Robert was also our lead vocalist. So we had, you know, we at that time it was more of a rock band. We played anything that was, and it was the late '60s, early '70s. So you know, um, the, you know, the Jimi Hendrix or. Uh, Eric Clapton and, you know, those kind of guitar players were happening, although we both had a, a strong, we could play a lot of uh, R&B and soul songs, you know, like uh, Sam and Dave or Booker T and the MGs and that kind of thing too because, you know, certainly Steve Cropper was an early hero of mine. And so we, we played we played in a rock band. We, were, we had kind of a monopoly on most of our dances, and uh, so we did a lot of those. Uh, and then at our graduation, we, saw, we had Albert Collins perform for us and that was, uh, that changed everything. I mean, we both always dug the blues, but that really, really blew me away. That, and I would say seeing B.B. King, uh, I think when I was 17 or 18, too. It just, I mean, I I love all kinds of music. I love all kinds of guitar music, but there's just something about the blues that really, I it's like, oh, wow, this is something that I just, it just really moved me in a way. And, and of course, with Robert, too, uh, no doubt, you know, we would, you know, spend our spare money on records i would hitchhike up to seattle after mowing a lawn to be able to pick up you know live at the regal or something like that or (laughs) so what do you think it was about the blues was it strictly the guitar side
1: of things because you were a guitar player or was it the emotional vocals and and or was it the song matter
0: you know it's probably a combination of the those blue notes I will say that, um, like B.B. King talks about when he says re-importing the blues, about how some of the British people bought it here to Americans, and he's called it re-importing the blues. A lot of the stuff that, you know, since I didn't really so much grow up in a household where, you know, Bobby Bland was being played or Little Milton so much, you know, that, that wasn't the thing. Um, it came to me through the Rolling Stones, actually. And I looked, and I would say, who is Confessing the Blues? Who is this J. McShann or whatever, you know, or, wow, this is Solomon Burke, or, you know, uh, Slim Harpo, and then I would call a DJ at the local radio station, and he would play those songs, too. I I think he had a song, uh, his his show came on, he played Blues and Soul in Okinawa. I think he was an off-duty service person, and I think it was called uh, uh, Night Train, but I would just call in, and, uh, you say, "No, that one's that's not my Marvin Gaye. It's actually by Solomon Burke. But I'll play it for you, or something." And one thing kind of led to another, and it was just cool. And um, I just, uh, and to this day, I just, I, I love all kinds of music. It's like food to me, and it speaks to me. I'm just as happy, you know. I mean, you know, what I, what I get when I listen to Yo Yo Ma, or what I get listening to, you know, Jimmy Reed. It's the same kind of thing and stuff, and I just love it
1: when you were moving around and i presume you were probably moving around every year or every 2 years from one place to another being uh uh yeah between 2 and
0: 3 right okay 2
1: and 3 did you find that difficult i mean that's you know that's mean that basically means uprooting your place and making new friends every 2 to 3 years which is not often easy or it gets tougher as you get older
0: how how do you think that affected you well it you know because it was just it's it's nice to have like you know you you have a friend and then you have the separation, you know and uh, chances are you're probably never going to see that person again. Even though as a kid sometimes you think well well I'll see you again and a couple of times I did you know where right. we, out of coincidence we'd be stationed at the same place a couple of years later and go hey did you go to you know junior high and and you know in Naha, Okinawa I go yeah that's me my name's Tony I go yeah we went to class together or something and and end up in Washington State or something but. uh yeah, that could be a little a little difficult, um, and especially during those times in the early '60s, because I I, I grew up in you know like oftentimes on federally protected things like you know certain things you couldn't do like discriminate or anything like that because there were federal laws. But if you got off that base, like in you know we uh, we were stationed in Florida and there was kind of a um, in some ways during the early '60s, you know. Um, 62, 63, there was a lot of really, you know, bad, ugly, horrible stuff going on and then to realize that, you know, on base everything was fine. You know, our Little League team could be integrated but, we, you know, we couldn't have that same team off the base and I realized that I would be singled out uh, sometimes but I didn't get it as bad as, you know, the African American people And, and, you know, I got a little taste of it and then I just, and it dawned on me that there is, you know, some real uh, injustices in this world, and, and it was pretty eye-opening. And uh, and uh, but you never felt that on the base. And, you know, it you you would get it, but not nearly as much. You know, you might get it, but it would be more, much more isolated. And that would be like, would you be going to classes like school on base or? Yeah, off base? yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of the things was, I would get picked up. Um, uh, to go to school in a, in a staff car because we lived off base at the time, and the school was on base, so I had about a half mile or a mile walk to meet this the, this vehicle that would take me to and from school and um, There are some Japanese kids <laughs> that knew i wasn 't Japanese, even though I looked japanese they they knew I was american, and you know there was uh, uh, there were some sentiments that weren 't uh, exactly warm and fuzzy you know towards me, and I do recall. I was having to, like, run home every day to dodge these guys because I was in first grade, and the biggest guy was maybe, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade, which means, you know, that's a big, that's a big person when you're 6 yeah, and yeah. the other person's 10 or 11, and he had a couple of his little buddies too. And I and finally I got tired of running home every day, and I, I hid behind a wall, and I grabbed a big rock, and I nailed the biggest guy. <laughs> and, you know, luckily no blood was drawn, but he did have a big goose egg on him. And then I ran home as quick as I could, and I was just about to get caught at the door when my aunt uh, Tama from Nagoya, who was kind of a a gangster mall in a way, uh, (laughs) uh, she answered, you know, she spoke, she's got that, you know, uh, Nagoya was kind of like, there's a certain accent and a lot of slang, and, and these were like, you know. They hadn't heard that kind of language before. And so, you know, she just immediately opened the door, started swearing at them profusely, asking what they were doing, and said, better not do it again or there'd be trouble for them and scared the living daylights out of them. And I'll always be grateful to her for that because I just got to the door and they just caught me, you know. But I got tired of running and I thought I, that might, you know, I just I just had just, I felt I had to stand up.
1: I wonder if that experience or the experience of being treated differently would that have contributed in any way? And maybe I'm reading too much into this, and and maybe the way you connected to the blues.
0: Well, um, no, you know, no, no doubt. I mean, it didn't take too long to realize that you know, blues came from you know, there was a lot of oppression, a lot of racism, a lot of ugliness, but I couldn't believe how beautiful the music could be, despite coming from you know the worst circ you know the worst circumstances that that you know uh, us humans can possess and uh the fact that uh it just was was just so so you know so how much beauty could come from so much ugliness you know just always mm-hmm. kind of blew me away and i i saw it and i hear it in in other other things too you know i think that uh Oh, well, it's like Miles Davis said. You know, what kind of music do you play? He said folk music. Folk music. Goes, yeah, music for folks. You know, but still, there's 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 stories in uh, um, in all different kinds of music, and you know, that the folk music or you know, and oftentimes you you hear songs of people that have been you know a, a, oppressed, and um, I I just thought it was. I still do think it's amazing that you know how much influence it had on the rest of the world as far as as far as music goes. You know, in our culture.
1: Okay so you hang out with Robert Cray you're in a band with him Yeah um at what point do you think I want to pursue music as a career
0: Oh yeah um well when I found out that musicians got to sleep in you know no I <laughs> seriously um I just thought that seeing Albert Collins just blew me away so much and Albert and uh, Robert and I both idolized him and and seeing that it could be done, and seeing that people were, you know, um, it just seemed like there was no other alternative. I I initially wanted to play sports. I I love baseball. Um, I wanted to be, for a long time, a professional baseball player. I would watch, you know, Japanese professional teams and U.S. professional teams, played in the little leagues for many years, you know, but I I didn't. I didn't have the ability to have been a, a successful player. Maybe at my very best, I might have made it to some small community college and gotten a tuition waiver. But there was there was no professional prospects. But uh, the guitar just really it you know it drew me it drew me there. Seeing Robert Collins changed everything because it was also my birthday, and he played at our graduation. And I sat next to Robert, and it just it just blew me away so much. I mean, it just killed me. I'd already heard you know. A lot of the great rock guitar players, but seeing Albert Collins and, and then again BB King, Freddie King, and Albert King, it just changed everything.
1: Did you do you think you had an idea of what that life was like? Like, I mean, you got to know Albert Collins quite well afterwards, yeah. but yeah. you know, when you're 18, watching you at your graduation and seeing this guy who just blew you away on stage, and think maybe I can be a blues guitarist. Do you did you have any sense of what that really meant?
0: Well, you know, I, there was a part of me that thought, you know, when you're young, you you, you think that, you know, we can sometimes minimize obstacles and stuff, but... And 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 that's good because you have yes. the spirit to be able to pursue it, you know. And I didn't think anything eventually of of just putting a guitar over my back and moving to L.A. and see what whatever the com- comes what may. I didn't know it was going to be as difficult, but I got a glimpse of how hard it is when I saw the being around Albert Collins and seeing some of the day to day struggles that he would go through sometimes, you know, if the van broke down or you know, uh, or you know, being broken. When I first moved to L.A., I got a little taste on what it's like to, you know. To, to miss a meal or two, or to miss a couple of days of eating, you know, and it was like, wow, this this stuff isn't always easy. It just isn't like becoming a rock star or anything like that. But I also thought that you know, probably everybody that's got done anything worthwhile has persevered and hung in there. And uh, I'm not going to give up because this is the way it's supposed to be, you know. And and even the, the the cliches about you know having to pay some dues and stuff, but. Um, I, I saw that anything anything worthwhile, you have to work hard for it. And there's going to be a lot of disappointments. And, and uh, I, you know, I certainly have my share and heard my share of no's. But that's okay. It just, you know, it tempers the steel a little more. And, you said L.A. Did you move? To, I thought you went to San Francisco. You moved to L.A. first? Yeah, I moved to L.A. first. For what uh, reason?
1: Like, what did you think would, would, why L.A.?
0: Well, that's where Albert Collins was at. Oh, okay. And and you know we were I thought maybe I might have a shot. My dream was to maybe try to get a gig with Ike and Tina Turner because um, you know the, Ike Ike's favorite guitar player was Albert Collins, and I thought maybe you know I did a pretty good imitation of Albert and that might get me in the door <laughs> or something. And, you know, so I went out to the studio a couple of times and Ike never really answered. I think I spoke to him a couple of times and, and, you know, he would answer and say, no, nobody's here, you know. But so that (laughs) didn't pan out. So I go, you know, I didn't really have a plan B. My plan was to be, you know, with with the Ike and Tina Turner review. And that's not working out. Well, I started submitting demos in L.A. And uh, and it made me feel good in the fact that people would still give me an audience, even though it wasn't like. Uh, Blues was, you know, at that time, uh, I mean, disco was just hitting the scene. You know, at that time, there was this new artist named Bruce Springsteen or something. Different things were going on. Yeah. And, uh, but also, uh, like on ABC Records, there was still Blues Way. So uh, there were some artists that were on major labels. I think uh, uh, Otis Rush had done an album on Capitol, Um, you know. Albert had something on a label that Bill Simzik from the Eagles had produced. Of course, B.B. was with ABC, and Bobby Bland was with ABC. And uh, so it seemed like there was—and Shuggy, uh, Shuggy Otis inspired me. I thought, because we were almost the same age, you go, well, Shuggy can get something shaken. If, if you play your cards right and hang in there, you might be able to you know, get something going, too. So he was certainly an inspiration and, and, and several others. Well, it I, eventually I, I submitted the demo to a company called Elka Records,
1: can, sorry, can I ask you, yeah. what was the demo? I mean, at this point, you're con- convinced that you're going to pursue the blues music direction. Yeah. correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: what was the demo like?
0: Well, it certainly wasn't well thought out. I I put <laughs> together some genres that I of, of different genres, all blues oriented. Um, you know, maybe something funky, something a little rock and you know, but and and uh, just to show what I could play on on guitar, about five or six songs. You know, for a possible session work, or, or if somebody might perceive that as an artist and stuff. I mean, I I'm kind of amazed looking back that you know, here some very serious music industry people that gave me the time and sat all the way through it. You know, but, uh, and and uh, But just hearing no a lot, it's like you know, we're not saying you can't play, and but you know, we're gonna have to pass. You know what? You know, keep us in mind. You know, you get all those form letters from the different record companies, and they politely say no, and and that was okay because I. I was also had a group of friends that were doing the same thing were pounding the concrete submitting demos and, and hearing no a lot and uh, you know and it seemed to be a big part of it you know are you singing on these demos? no no so these no. are all instrumental yes blues? okay
1: <laughs> but I mean it's, it's it sounds like you put some thought into this I mean yeah. to think about the other artists who were making it at that time the different record labels that were assigning them and, yeah. and kind of making your own demo yeah. Um, did you have a sense of, I mean, what made you pursue that route as opposed to just grinding it out in the bars and and trying to make your names for yourself that way?
0: Well, I, I'd kind of already done a little bit of that, and I saw what was going on, and I thought that, like, you know what, I gotta, I'm gonna have to leave Washington State and get down to L.A. And, and the thing is, I remember Robert really kind of, tr- you know, said, you know we're playing together in a band if things don't go well we, we've got each other to look out after each other when you're by yourself you have nobody else man I wish you'd stick, stay with us and that way I, I know and I'll feel better knowing that you know because we were pretty close you know and and uh, and I, I appreciated it and I just said you know Robert you don't need another guitar player man you know you got everything you need here I got to find my own way here I appreciate it I'll always you know I, I mean I was always proud of him then and then when he you know did well it was fun being able to do a lot of shows with Etta and with Robert together and stuff, or with B.B. We did a, a record with B.B. King, and Robert was on it and did a duet, and I played on that one, too, and it won a Grammy. Um, That's the
1: Blues Summit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, and I, I always knew that he would be, he, he. you know, had the goods to make it, so I never was really surprised. I was all pleasantly happy, of course, but it never surprised me because he was always that good. Okay, so what what is it about
1: him that you thought he would always make it? Was it his voice? Was it his guitar playing? Was it his work ethic? Was it you all know, of that? All,
0: all, yeah, all of those. I mean, musically, I saw him pick up a violin for the first time and start making music without screeching. If He played <laughs> drums. He could really play drums. When he played bass, he, he I mean, he everything he touched was so um, was so musical, and 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 he could always, uh, you know, make it part of his language and so I just really admired him and I i don't think I've ever met anybody more talented really the way that he could just grasp things and stuff and uh, it always blew me away Wow
1: and what a great voice
0: Oh man There's, you know you, you you got it you know absolutely absolutely I, I you know and that's my favorite instrument is voice so I ended up playing with a singer by the name of Frankie Lee who was on this label Frankie was a Texas blues and soul singer and Robert's band actually backed us up a couple times um, and I learned a lot from Frankie, um, and uh, he also used to play with Albert Collins, but he was on Duke Peacock, and man, could he, he sing, you know. It was kind of his voice kind of in between, like maybe Bobby Bland's and Johnny Taylor with his own thing, strong gospel roots, and, you know, I realized how hard, you know, how hard, how hard that hustle was, and oftentimes, you know, we'd be stranded somewhere a couple thousand miles away and no money in our pockets and have to figure out a way to get home, but... Um, it made it easier with two people, because we would work, we would pick up different bands everywhere. But uh, you know that was it was fun. And I learned a lot from Frankie.
1: So, when you stuck two thousand miles away from home, trying to figure out how am I going to get home, was there ever a point where you thought, "Why am I doing this? Or can I continue to do this for the rest of my life?"
0: You know, there was never any doubt that it wasn't something that I was supposed to be doing. I I kind of realized that on and and you know and so you know when you're when you're younger it it isn't so bad I wouldn't want to go through that stuff now you know and and <laughs> <No. laughs> there's a certain amount of comfort that I require but back then it was like it was really okay you know and it was just seemed to be part of it I always thought there would be you know it would lead to something and that and that there was these experiences to be treasured and what I wanted to learn musically, wasn't always something that was in books. It was in a lot of clubs, you know, and, and, and hearing what, you know, the people were playing in Kansas, you know, the musicians were playing in Kansas City or in Dallas or, you know, traveling around and hearing, hearing the different, the different, um, you know, different styles um, being played in different places.
1: I, I wonder what you, once you started working with Frankie Lee and, and thinking that something is going to happen, what was it that gave you that inner belief that things will be, things will work out?
0: Well, I, I thought that what we had going was strong and worthy, you know, of that, and that, uh, you know, I I think there's a certain naivete about how if if you put enough work into it, you know, something will will happen. And I realize now that that's not always the case, but. You couldn't have told me otherwise, you know. Um, well, thank God, though, right? Because I yeah, mean, it yeah. did happen to you. <laughs> oh, it's to me, my it's very basic, you know. If you, it's it's like, you know, the analogy that I would use was like, you know, if you keep chopping on a tree, you you know, it, sooner or later it'll come down and stuff. It's like, you know, but other times my mom would say, yeah, but this that person's got a bulldozer and I got a butter knife. This is going to take a long time. <laughs> but I learned from Albert Collins. Um, because I, it dawned on me at an early age, too, it's like, you know what? I, I'm never going to be as good as B.B. King or Albert Collins or a, a lot of other people, you know, Andre Segovia, on and on and on. But that's but Albert said, but nobody can be you better than you. And if you have the ability to express yourself, and he said, and if you can come up with this style, some people go through their whole lives and never have a style. And that's what caught my attention. It's like, you know, I can have my own style and, and be comfortable and, and have a musical vocabulary and maybe eventually, you know, somebody can hear me on the radio and recognize that it's me. So I you know, um, I, I was always um, in awe of, of a lot of wonderful musicians and, and to this day, you know, I get inspired by all kinds of people and all kinds of different genres. I know you played with a lot of
1: people, but is it correct to assume
0: that when you met Etta
1: James or when she called you to join her band, that was your big break?
0: Oh no doubt about it. It put me on. I'd played with a lot of people by then. Yes, you know Otis Rush, Albert Collins, um, you know Little Milton, Lowell Folson, Percy Mayfield, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, etc. Just quite a few, quite a few people. A lot of that was through playing with Mark Nafflin from the Paul Butterfield Band. But playing with Etta put put it on a whole another level where, you know, we were playing bigger venues and she had uh, gotten a nice break. And the first call actually when she first called me. Um, I, uh, you know, I did a lot of irresponsible things when I was younger and I, when she first called me, I had to tell her that, um, I wasn't, she she said, Hey, I've heard some good things about you, man. Um, I'm, you know, I got a new band, I'm putting together a new band. I'm looking for a blues guitar player. I hope that you're interested. And, uh, we got a gig in New York and can you do it? And I, unfortunately I was unable to do it because I had to, uh, i had gotten in trouble with the law and I had to give the County 90 days. And something told me that it was okay to be truthful with her, because normally it wouldn't be something I would say to somebody, you know? Right. And it was a call that I'd always wanted. I wanted to play with her so badly. I envisioned myself playing with her, so when I got the call, it was just like my dream had come true, and then to say I wouldn't be able to make that gig. And then it got quiet after I told her that. She goes, 90 days, huh? And I go, well, 80 if I can get good behavior in there. And then she goes, hmm. You can do that standing on your head. I'll call you when you get out. You'll be all right. Just hang in there, man. And lo and behold, she made good and gave me a chance despite that.
1: Wow. That's a great story. Um, How much did she know about you before this? I mean, had you played with her that much?
0: Um, She'd heard a lot about me. And I think one time when she saw me, um, we did one gig and I had a little gold tooth and she kind of approved of that, you know, and the fact that I had a suit and a tie on, she goes, Oh man, you dress like Lil Folson and you got a gold tooth too, man. She nicknamed me baby T-bone cause she loved T-bone Walker too and stuff. And, uh, um, that was kind of, that was, that was sort of it. Cause she, you know, she loved the blues and she, she was dear friends with, you know, I mean, Albert King, John Lee Hooker, just all of them and stuff. And, you know, of course she was crazy about Albert Collins and, you know, her and B.B. King used to be an item when I think she was 16, you know. She says that Sweet 16 is written about her. Right. I told B.B. that, and he just gave a very sweet sm- sweet smile. He was crazy <laughs> about her, too.
1: I wonder, at that point, when she called you, how did you feel about your own guitar playing?
0: I, you know what, I, I thought I was... Really ready, and I thought I was the perfect guy for the job. Cause there was th- there was another guitar player we both played with, and man, is he terrific, Mr. Josh Gellar, and he was our musical director. Josh can play anything, and he's a wonderful blues guitar player too. And I think she wanted somebody that's that kind of specialized in, in in blues, and that's kind of how my name my name came up. um But I just thought that I was the you know, I just I just always, I pictured you know, being on in there with her and. Uh, I just loved their music, and you know, because it, it wouldn't make any sense. It was to me, it was the perfect gig, you know. I could play soul, I could, there were, you know, blues, um, rock, and stuff. And not that there was, it also called for some, some, you know, some jazz, but that's which isn't my forte by any stretch. But there was a lot of great players in the band that would help me out if it came down to a jazz standard they could cover for me or something, you know.
1: You said that your influences were Albert Collins and B.B. King. Two great guitar players, mm-hmm. but what was what is it, what was it about you at that point that you played with so many other people that that Etta would actually call you and say join my band like what what qualities did you possess that you think that might have caused people to take notice of you?
0: Um, I think also the fact that um, she knew that I would played with Johnny Guitar Watson and they were very close, and uh, Johnny was an idol of hers. And when we talked on the phone, everything, you know, um, she goes, man, I heard a lot of things about you, you know, and, and I kind of got lucky, I think, in, in, in the respect that, uh, uh, people that she had contacted, you know, she, she said, everybody I've contacted just recommends you, uh, you know, and, uh, her manager said the same thing too. And I think, um, her husband liked the way that I played He'd he heard me play before too. And. And I think uh, Jim Pugh from the Robert Cray Band put in a really good word. Tim Kaihatsu from the Robert Cray Band, uh, he was leaving editor to play with Robert full-time and said, hey, you know, you should really check out Bobby Murray, you know. And so there were some people that, that threw some good shout-outs for me. I think Tom Masolini from the San Francisco Blues Festival put a good word in for me, too.
1: Wow. So how long did it take till you knew that this was your gig, that um, you were accepted as a band
0: member? You know, you know. I remember telling my ex-wife at the time we went to Go see Etta, and I and I said I'm going to have that gig, about two years prior before I got it. She looked at me and just kind of smiled, and you know, I I just just felt it was where I was supposed to be. It it didn't. I guess maybe from the the first gig, the first rehearsal, I just loved what she was doing and the other musicians, and um, just really a good, wonderful, a, a wonderful cadre of musicians. The musicianship was superb. And then just being around her it was just the coolest thing ever. She had the greatest stories, you know, and she was happy to share them on the tours and stuff. And, uh, you know, um, it was just always fun being around her.
1: I, As great as she is, I'm not sure if she gets the recognition she deserves. Um, tell me about the editor that you know. I mean, I think it speaks volumes, uh, the first story you told about her believing in you and willing to wait 80 days for you to come out. But... Tell me about the editor that you know and um, the the, the amazing person and singer that she was.
0: Well, she had a big heart, a very big heart. Um, She would give people opportunities. Um, Oftentimes it might be somebody that was a friend of one of her sons that would end up, uh, you know, getting a job and uh, getting some opportunities um, that that may not have been afforded. You know, and uh, she was... She she was very protective in some ways of herself so she had a this persona that was like this tough gal, you know. Um, but it was probably because she was very big hearted and kind hearted and that was what she put on up there and being in a, a male dominated business, you know, have whether it's producers or, you know, record company execs and stuff like that, she she figured out, you know, what that gaming system was and and, you know, ended up learning how to play it but still staying true to herself completely she just wasn't interested in you know doing something if she couldn't feel it um, and and believe that it was right for her musically she wouldn't do it you know she just wasn't somebody she was open she was always open-minded about a lot of things and and, and you know she knew whatever she did she was going to put there'd be a certain flavor of hers. And I think I learned that from her, too. You know, it's like, you know, just make sure and put whatever you do, just make sure and put your own stamp on it so it's you. You know, so she she saw different musics change because, I mean, she was there from, you know, the beginning of rock and roll, the golden, you know, blues stuff over at Chess, all the great soul stuff. She was very close with Otis Redding. He was going to produce a record on her, you know, when he had passed away, um, which was probably one of the reasons why she was afraid about flying in small planes, you know. And, um, um, you know, she was close with, uh, you know, Richie Valens and all the people that went the big bopper and all them and went down in that plane too, because her, you know, she already had role with me, Henry. So she was, she was in so many bags. And then she also, um, you know, was in on the inside scene with, I mean, her. Okay. One time, uh, she was sharing a limo with Miles Davis and they knew each other. And, you know, she knew all the jazz people too. And, uh, he gets into the car and, and she says "He and get, she goes so Bobby so he's listening to Albert Collins right and I go yeah and she's got to turn it up way loud and, and she imitates his voice you know like hey Ed, you know who this, is? this is Albert Collins he goes man I've been knowing who Albert Collins is you know that's my buddy and stuff yeah I know who he is you can't hit me to Albert Collins I know who Albert Collins is said but he goes yeah but he's bad and stuff so and so it was just it was just really interesting and stuff and uh wow um, yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> that speaks volumes yeah so you said that it took you to a different level um can you maybe give me a handful or a couple of highlights of working with her
0: of working with Etta? yeah Yeah. um well i mean i presume
1: that it means touring in places you've never been before
0: and very much playing
1: to an audience you've never played before a bigger audience but what would be a personal highlight for you
0: Oh, man. Um, well, we would still do a lot of touring sometimes with, with Albert Collins and Etta together, and Albert would say, hey, you know, you think it'd be okay with Etta if if you could play rhythm guitar with me on part of the tour, too? And I'd say, well, let me ask. And she'd say, of course. And she'd come out and support us, you know, on the side of the stage cheering for Albert and cheering for me, too. And then when I was playing with Etta, Albert would be cheering, you know. I mean, it just, that was heaven, you know, to be able to have my... My heroes. The same thing with, we toured a lot with B.B. King, too, and I uh, got pretty close with B.B., and um, we got to share a lot of stuff, too. I would say, um, well, playing Carnegie Hall with that it was a big deal. Wow. You know, um, but it it didn't, you know, the thing was, every every gig, though, it, you know, I mean, some of them are, I'm sure, better than others, but um, what she would do at the moment, you know, what she could do, how how she could, you know, You could play a song maybe 500 times or a 1,000 times, but she would never do her songs the same way and could, uh, uh, you know, just touch the deepest part of my soul. You know, I mean, she could just sound check and do a mic test and almost bring me to tears. I mean, she really had it, you know.
1: I can't imagine playing with somebody like Etta James for 23 years and hearing her sing her classics on a... You know, daily basis or on, on many a nights in over the years for you to hear songs like At Last or um, Rather Go Blind. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, and those are standards that other people sing, and, yeah. and you're playing it with the real deal. Yeah. I, I, I presume you've been in situations where you've had to play that song with less than era type singers, which must be just something else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I I appreciate the, the, all the people that have so much love for her that you know that that do that and yeah you know it's like hey my niece does a version of it last I I got to send it to you and of course <laughs> I'm gonna listen to it because I understand because I've been that person too yeah, so you know but but yeah yeah you know, um, but, but yeah, um, yeah, you, know you, you 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 do get that I mean you know I I, I recall you know we did do a couple of uh, I wanted to really stay away from the whole tribute kind of thing but we did a couple of salute type shows. It took a little while before I even wanted to do anything like that. Um, and I didn't want it to try to even be like her, but I also realized that I had to hire at, f- at least four singers to be able to cover the genre she did. Because, right. you know, um, she could just as easily go from country to blues to rock to jazz, you know, and, and most people it's one or the other, you know. Um, and uh, and so it, it, And so... You know, we did we did some shows, and there was some some uh, pretty good feedback on that. But I didn't want to. Uh, I thought that if I'd stayed too much in that bag, we would what we would do is we would do songs that she did and reinterpret them and do it another way. You know, which is something she'd always encourage. It's like you got to do it your own way; otherwise, there's no point.
1: It must have been quite a. I mean, working with somebody for that many years and then not to be working with
0: them anymore—that
1: must have been a difficult adjustment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I, I was trying to uh, actually write a song about it, you know, and I kept on getting stuck, and uh, I couldn't get anywhere with the song, and it just never really went anywhere. And I remember my, my wife saw me struggling with it, and she goes, you know, I, I was there for a lot of this. I've got some ideas if you want to let me try to give it a try. And she finished the song, and I'm really, really happy with it. And, this is uh, love letter to yeah yeah okay. and, and Greg sang lead on it you know and um, he conveyed it just beautifully it was just um, you know to try to put in a nutshell what it was like to uh, to play with her because see I moved here from from uh, from Detroit from California right. um, and I needed to get permission from Etta. you know it's like hey I'm moving to Detroit I, I met a gal it was not we were on tour and I met my wife to be at the lobby of the Fox theater in Detroit and um, and so she she goes, yeah. She goes, yeah, there's a major airport there. We'll be fine, you know. So I uh, was able to do that. And so it was a little bit different because, you know, I, I'd i been in California for so long and stuff, and even though I lived in the Bay Area, it was only 400 miles away from, from L.A. where she lived. Um, I tell you one thing I'd like to tell you, though, Marco is I remember one time we were doing a recording session, and uh, I, I, I misplaced my sunglasses, so I asked her son, it was at her house. It he goes, hey, you got extra pair of shades? The sun's kind of bright tonight. He goes here, take these. So I show up at the uh, recording session. I didn't know that it was a pair of uh, John Lennon sunglasses that were a gift to Etta, <laughs> and uh, and 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 so she goes, and and then it turns out that I ended up losing them too because <gasps> Julian Lennon had given these are my dad's. I want you to have them. So I I didn't know. I thought they were just down to her our oldest son, who was uh, our our drummer. I percussionist at the time. was here, just take these, man. And so I lost them, and she just said, you know, that was a gift from John <laughs> Lennon, man. I bet you got drunk and lost them, didn't you? I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> and she forgave me.
1: <laughs> I just want to go back. The Love Letter to um, to Edda James is a new EP that you're releasing. and yes. So this is something that's,
0: I don't know if it's come, it's come out already or it's coming out soon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we released it. Uh, It's just getting to some of the DJs now and we'll be pushing it for a while because it's, it's independent. Um, I I, I called the ensemble itself. is called love letters from Detroit. Um, And uh, cause I, you know, I thought, you know, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to have a horn section, uh, a, a much, a much bigger band. I went, I went for the instrumentation that, that Ed had a horn section, a couple of guitar players, maybe a couple of keyboard players, and several vocalists, and a review. Like, going back to the old Icontina Turner thing, I remember seeing them, and it's like, wow, that's... You know, if you have a review and everything's moving, it's hard to... You know, it's always exciting, you know. Um, or, or blues consolidated those reviews with... Uh, jr parker and bobby blue bland and stuff that duke peacock used to have i just like the idea of it the problem is sometimes is there's a lot of people involved so there's a bigger payout right but right right um,
1: but is there a chance for more festival
0: work um yeah yeah you know i i haven't i haven't toured in in quite some time i would probably be open for it but um on the other hand you know i did a lot of that So we'll see. It kind of have to. Maybe I'd love to. You know, I can still do a lot of things in the area, right? I mean, it's you know, being here. You know, Toronto's not far away. New York's not far away. Chicago's not far away. You know, and uh, we'll we'll see. We'll certainly see. Um, uh, I I do you know I do miss you know a decent amount of that, and um, probably look forward to doing it again sometimes.
1: Okay, I have to ask about Percy Mayfield. Tell me about working with him.
0: Oh man. Um, yeah, that was back when I played with Mark Naftalin, um, um, who was the original keyboard player for the Paul Butterfield band. And he had put together his his review and and Percy would oftentimes be a, a you know, back accompanying him was just you're sitting there just looking at him. He was so funny, he was so so smart and you looked at, you know, his his body of, of songs. Um and, and what a you know, what a character. Uh, funnier than I'll get out, and just to be around him. I mean, you know what? I, you know he wrote for Ray Charles for what you know all those hits for Ray Charles for all those years and stuff too, and and his songs. You know, please send me someone to love. I think was number one in 1950, and that song's about you know it's 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 a song about yearning, but it's also a song. I I would say there's something in there strong about civil rights. Um, you know. The Cold War was going on; it just managed to cover a whole lot in just a a, a song, and and he had that ability to uh, put something into a song that was only several minutes long, but boy, there'd be a lot of stuff put in there. He was just a writer's writer, and I love the way he sang. Yeah,
1: and what a beautiful song! That is yeah. such a stunning song. Yeah. Um, Albert Albert King, you worked with him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Talk about that. Oh man, um, he's. Uh, it it wasn't you know I we we showed up. I played with him a couple time, uh, one time, and he didn't have his band, and I don't know if he was that that you know thrilled with uh, with us because we didn't even get a chance to do a rehearsal. But I just <laughs> I just uh, I loved him. There was nobody you know there was nobody like him. You know um, there was absolutely nobody like him, um, and it was it, it it was a wonderful experience. And he is a, he's certainly a big influence too. I mean, just crazy about him.
1: Okay, so I'm going to go back to Albert Collins. Yeah. So you're sitting there at 18 on graduation watching this guy, yeah. and you're just blown away thinking, I want to do that maybe. Yeah. yeah. And years later, you're on tour with him and Etta yeah. and sharing the stage and playing with his band. What What is that
0: like? Um, I try to remember to be grateful and and, and pinch myself and go, man, you know, And I try to tell other people, you know, other people that um, might be inspired by me, like, you know, if you just hang on in there um, and keep showing up and doing what you're supposed to do and giving it everything you can, good things can happen for you, you know. you you got to be in the mix, and um, be honest with yourself, and it's kind of stingy. It only gives you what you put in, but if you put it in, there's a very good chance you'll get it back. Well
1: put. Okay, one other thing I want to ask you about and I, this is a moment I actually remember um, I can't tell you the exact scene but I remember watching the Sopranos and hearing Blues Is My Business come on and then when I was researching this I found out that you were the guitar player on that song and what a great song and what a powerful piece of music that you know that's, that was very memorable when it happened because I thought who is this And, and tell me about that song <laughs>
0: That's funny cuz I kind of did the same thing too cuz I kind of forgot it, you know. And I'm listening and there's a guitar intro and then and and my wife is in the other room and she goes, "Oh, I like that," you know. and Stuff and I go, "Yeah." I think that's what my wife said too. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then I go, "Honey, that's that, that's that's me playing with Etta, you know." <laughs> and uh and so we, we got a big kick out of that, you know. And it was fun cuz I didn't know. I just was watching the Sopranos cause I was a fan of the show and, and to hear it, it was pretty fun, you know? So it just came out of nowhere and you weren't yeah, even sure at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So
1: a couple other things you were, um, you received the 2011 lifetime achievement award from the Detroit Blues society. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. What an honor.
0: Yes. 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 Um, this has been, um, so welcoming. Um, you know, the Detroit area, the musicians, um, the Blue Society, uh, they just, they just made me so welcome here, um, and, you know, cause, uh, Etta used to kid me, she'd go, Bobby, you know, California to Detroit, you know, I go, yeah, she goes, y- you really love it there, don't you, and I go, yeah, I do, you know, I like the seasons too, don't get me wrong, I love California, I love Washington <laughs> State, but I, I do love it here, and, uh, You know, like the first time I ever saw a cardinal in the snow. But I also knew that there's a ton of great musicians here because I played with so many of them, you know. uh, Even out on the West Coast, it was like, where's that bass player from? Oh, Detroit, huh, or what have you and stuff. (laughs) A couple of our bass players with that were from Detroit, you know. So Reggie McBride and Alan McGreer, you know, and uh, a lot of wonderful musicians here.
1: So my final question to you is, when you look back on this amazing journey, tell me, how, how do you look back on that?
0: I, I feel um, so grateful to have been provided so many opportunities. I, I just feel grateful to have seen so many things um, and, and been a part of so much and uh, be with so many people that I truly look up to. And it's, it's been a gift. And uh, I want to try to always be wor- worthy of the gifts that have been given to me. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm honored beyond measure.
1: It's crazy to think that that kid who played the Ray Charles song got kicked out of his music class. Yeah. He had a living playing music.
0: The best thing that could have happened to me. (laughs) Bobby, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Marco. Thank you so much and all the best. Really appreciate this very much.